Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. This is not a uh, proper episode of my podcast, Circle of Willis. It's, uh, it's a bonus episode, I guess. By which I mean to say, I'm not really sure what else to call it. Uh, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like the extras you get on a DVD or something like that. I think, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna do this sort of thing occasionally. What what happened is so after Lisa and I recorded our first conversation, we got to got to chatting about how she started studying emotion and and what it was like for her to sort of buck the dominant view of what emotions were. And we realized, shit, we should record this too. Uh, we didn't have much time, but we switched on the recorder and continued to to chat more or less as we had been. So uh, so now, now you get to hear Lisa describe not only what she knows, but a, a bit more about her, uh, I guess, her process. How, how pulling on various scientific threads led her to the study of emotion, and then to, you know, neuroscience, and then to, uh, you know, the philosophy of science, and then to the sociology of science, and on and on with her. She's, she's like that. And uh, she'll also relate some... I don't know, to my mind, pretty, pretty shocking reactions to her, her work earlier on in her career, which I, I won't talk about here. In fact, you know what? I'm just going gonna, gonna to stop yammering on and on and get right to the interview. So, uh, folks, here's some more uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. How did you get to the point where you're... I'm sure this is a much more complicated story and we could go on for another whole hour to talk about this, but I know that you started out in life as a clinical psychologist, right? You, you were studying clinical psychology in graduate school. Did you get a clinical degree? I did, yeah. Did you do internship and I all did. that stuff? Oh, absolutely. Did you get licensed? I, uh, I came very short of getting licensed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I did, um, I worked as a, a clinic assistant in graduate school, which meant that I was not only seeing my own clients, but also supervising other graduate students. And then I did a clinical internship. I, my first job was as a cl- in a clinical, as an assistant professor in clinical psychology. So for four years, I was in a clinical area. I saw patients. Um, I taught clinical assessment, which I loved, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I wrote my licensing exam. Uh, and I, you know, I came very short of, I had all my hours logged and everything to be licensed, but then I decided to give it up. I just decided to focus on, on, to move out of clinical psychology and focus on research. Wow. So emotion is obviously relevant to clinical psychology in, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. But how does one go from I mean, you weren't studying emotion uh, initially, right? What were you studying then? So I entered graduate school. So first of all, I should say, you know, I thought I would go to medical school. Uh huh. And um, so I was really focused on going to medical school. And my undergraduate research advisor in psychology, I was working in several psychology labs to get Uh research experience. And my psychology advisor at that time said, listen, I just want you to apply to a couple of graduate graduate schools too. Um, And so I was like, okay, okay. So (laughs) I applied only to two, actually. Two grad schools. That's it, just two. In in, in Boston? No, I didn't. I lived in Toronto at the time. Oh, right. So I applied to the University of Toronto to do cognitive psychology with Dan Schachter. Nice. Because he was a 
yeah. I took a course from him. Yeah. And um, clinical psychology at the University of Waterloo, which was just the just next down the road. town over because it was the top ranked clinical program in the country. Yeah. And so I thought, OK, yeah, that's my two. Yeah. Yeah. And then somewhere along the way uh, of my senior year, I realized I love doing research, love, 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 because it was my first real opportunity to do my own research, right? Yeah. Um, and I really, I was watching all my friends go to medical school, because in Canada, um, you can go to medical school after your second or third year of, of university. So all of my friends were starting, you know, medical school. And um, I was like, I don't, I don't really don't want to be told. I just didn't want to be told what to do. <laughs> and I really, you know, I so much don't like being told what to do that I can't even follow a recipe, seriously. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know, I guess I just, I was watching what they were doing. And while I, I thought that the science was interesting, it seemed to me that they weren't learning science as a process. They were they learning science. science. They were learning, they were consumers of science. Right, they were right. learning science as a body of facts, right. which I found uninteresting actually yeah, i really yeah. wanted to pursue the 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 generative side of science and so i had only applied to two graduate schools i got into both and um i went into clinical because dan schachter was moving to the university of arizona and so really the decision was made for me wow um and so i started graduate school and i started i was very interested in the self that in fact i just at we you know um just a few moments ago um, at the annual meeting of the Association for Psychological Science, I introduced Hazel Marcus, who um, won uh, the William James Award, right. um, which is a, an, a, the, the highest it's, honor, it's basically. just about the best the, it can get. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the, one of the first papers I read in graduate school was Hazel's paper on her 1977 paper on the self on the as a self. cognitive schema. Yeah, wow. No, so that was really... So that also set you up a little bit for a, a kind of world view. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, we could talk about my my his, my own uh, developmental history and what set me up to be a constructionist, but or take more constructionist v- uh-huh. views of things. Um, but I also have always had an abiding interest in biology, and I was very interested in anatomy, really, since high school. I took my first anatomy course in high school, and I'm very interested in physiology and genetics. And so I've always read a lot in those fields, kind of outside, uh, you know, psychology. Um, and when I was in graduate school, the first research that I was doing was really more about the self, but it required the use of self-report measures of emotion, which were not behaving themselves in the way Oh, here's where it gets started. So what they weren't. And so I, my first eight experiments in psychology and graduate school failed. I I failed to replicate eight times. I failed to replicate published findings. And I, my first thought, was clearly I'm not cut out to be a scientist. And uh, luckily, I was doing very well in my clinical training. And um, so just I thought, okay, you know, I'll clients. just do that. Have I'll an just income. see clients. I'll have an yeah. In- yeah, exactly. I'll have a nice office. It'll yeah. be, you know, I'll have nice furniture. I'll be able to, you know. <laughs> Go back to Toronto. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, you know, but then when I started to look into my data a little more, so I was always, as I said, you know, I, I, um, I, th- I think I, you know, I've always been c- kind of a tenacious person, and I don't take failure uh, lightly. And I decided to look through my data very carefully. And when I did, I realized I may have been failing to replicate published 
findings, but I was replicating myself again right. and again and again. And the finding that I had was that people were not distinguishing between anxiety and depression or fear and sadness, which are supposed to be very different emotions. So I thought, you know, having been schooled in, um, I, I mean, I wasn't trained, uh, you know, to study emotion, but I had read, you know, um, enough in psychology to know that, well, you know, Darwin said that there were facial expressions that were diagnostic, one for each emotion. And William James supposedly said that, you know, each emotion had its own bodily pattern. So it should be really easy to just objectively measure how people feel, what state they're in. And then I could compare that to their ratings and I could determine who was accurate and who wasn't. And then I could maybe teach the people who were not accurate to be accurate. <laughs> and this seemed like, you know, a reasonable thing to do. So I thought that this would be like a, I would just solve the problem of the measurement problem in my studies of the self. And in the meantime, I would also, you know, start to figure out who's accurate, who's accurately aware of their experiences and who isn't and, and just teach the people wow. who are. And so you're assuming that there's a objective. Yeah. Well, sure, because th- we all assume that. Yeah, because that's what, that's what all the papers said. Yep. That's what all the textbooks said. That's yep. what that that was the classical view. What did I know? And so uh, so I started to look for the objective markers of these emotions. And um, I realized over a number of years that they don't exist. So you started pulling on a thread. I started to pull on a thread. Yeah. First, I thought, well, Darwin said, you know, that we um, pout when we're sad and scowl when we're angry. So that must obviously be true. Let me see if it is. And then I'll learn how to measure muscle movements on the face. And it turns out that Darwin, Darwin didn't exactly say what everybody claims him to have said. Mm -hmm. But some of the things he did say, actually, in this book, contradicted his most uh, well-known um, book on the origin of species, which had a number of conceptual innovations in that book, which were absent in the expression of the emotions in men and animals, which I found interesting and compelling, actually. Uh, and so I just, I just started to dig in really much more deeply into the literature on the face. And then I realized, well, there are no real markers for facial expressions of, of anger, sadness, fear, and so on that are where you know each emotion has its an, its own single marker, or even a, a family of closely uh, uh, physically similar markers that anyone's ever actually scientifically verified in um, actual moving faces. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, you know, but at least there's the physiology. So you know, we all know what William James said, and you know, of course, when you read really closely, you find out William James actually really didn't, didn't say, say that. that. Um, and also, the data don't don't support it. So, I mean, we have been in my lab, we're just, I hope at the end of a, a very long multi-year process of um, publishing a, a meta-analysis, the most comprehensive meta-analysis of the peripheral physiology of emotion showing absolutely there are no patterns. And so when I realized that, of course, I had to learn psychophysiology first and then I learned so first I read and I couldn't find the evidence and then I was trained in psychophysiology with the help of several colleagues and then realized after I started running my own studies too that you know the there are no physical uh, fingerprints so then I thought okay well 
the brain. The brains, everyone kept saying, well, the, it's in the brain, it's in the brain. So they're okay, well, I have to become a neuroscientist now. So I, that's what I did. And um, I started to read, I had already been reading anatomy and so on, but I started to more seriously study neuroanatomy and, and brain imaging. And, um, and then reading, of course, track tracing studies in animals and other kinds of research. And, and you're publishing along the way, you're, you know, you're sort yeah. of going through all of this as, uh, you know, in, in writing papers along the way. And, I mean, I don't know this for sure. I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually asked you this specifically before, maybe because I've always assumed it, but I would have found it frightening to, to take the positions that you've, you've taken, especially as early as the, the 90s, the mid-90s. It was really challenging. Um, I, as a woman, yeah, um, and as someone who was challenging the status quo. Very dominant alpha male kinds very, of folks. Yeah, and... Some people who have a lot invested in the classical view, a lot financially invested, yeah. a lot of their career invested. Yeah. Um, and so, but for me, I just was really curious. I just was really curious to understand how it was, first of all, that I can feel angry or sad or afraid or gratitude or awe or happiness or compassion in a way, I, I feel these things effortlessly um, and automatically. I can look at someone and in instantly have a sense of how they feel, but yet no scientist can find a biological marker for any of these <laughs> categories. How would that happen? How could you? How could that happen? And what it did was it led me to be really interested in the nature of biological categories. So what is a biological category? If emotions certainly are mental categories, psychological, but they're also, you know, everything is a biological category too, right? And so if you, if you slice fine enough, yeah, yeah. So so and that led me to become interested just in much more in philosophy of science and how we map observations to ideas. And it also led me to be really interested in kind of the sociology of science of why were people getting so upset? Like, what is it? Why? You know, at first I thought, you know, let me just back up and say this. There was one, I talk about this in my book. I had one instance where one of our colleagues came up to me after uh, I had given a talk, a particularly provocative talk, and so deeply believed that anger uh, what was, um, you know, so deeply believed in the classical view of anger that he threatened to punch me in the face as evidence of what anger, what real anger looked like. Oh, my God. Right. Um, I had another um, colleague of ours, you know, kind of in a relationally aggressive way, tell me that um, obviously I'd never felt real fear in my life um, because I... I couldn't recognize it when I saw it. So would I like to have an experience that would, oh you know? God. Yeah. So, I mean, those are only two examples out of, you know, 25 years of giving talks. But in those moments, I thought, I think that something is keeping people really anchored to this view, something more than just their careers. Because a lot of these guys are scientists. We're all scientists. We're all really curious about stuff. You know, what we're curious about may differ, but so what is it that would be so important that would curtail someone's curiosity? What would, what would that be? And um, I realized at that point that maybe it was something even more important uh, than your career. Maybe it was 
what it, their ideas about what it meant to be human. <laughs> yeah, that's and, pretty important. And so there was a part of me um, that was just driven by the curiosity to know. And, um, you know, did I don't think that the that the conflict and I don't like conflict as a I don't like interpersonal conflict, but I also don't let it stop me from following the science as far as I can follow it. Um, so, you know, sometimes people ask me like, you know, wasn't it really hard for you? And the answer is it was hard actually at times. And it was hard to have people make attributions about my, the reason for doing something that was, you know, sometimes not flattering. And, um, but the real answer to the question of why I just kept pulling on that string was I was just really curious. And I, as a clinician, I was always really most intrigued with people when they were contradicting themselves, you know, cause, <laughs> yeah. cause in clinical science, when someone contradicts themselves, they say one thing and then in the same breath, they say something else, which is a contradiction. You know that there's some self-deception there somewhere. You don't know what it is. You don't know where it is. You don't know why, but you know, that's the moment where you, as a clinician, you kind of zero in on that little that little thread and you pull you know to see what you're going to get to be helpful to the person right Right. and i think the same kind of thing the same kind of thing probably applies here i saw an inconsistency and i just wasn't willing to let it go because i was just too curious to try to understand what were all the reasons why this inconsistency was being maintained i think that's so fascinating that is so fascinating to me and there's one specific thing I mean, this isn't at all about me, but during that time, when I'm first discovering your sort of journey through exploring these these inconsistencies, my minor in my PhD is in measurement. And I'm having all of these f- almost physical, here we go, physical sensations that were very unpleasant when I'm thinking about applying what I'm learning in measurement to the stuff that I'm studying, mm-hmm. because there were so many problems. And there are many of the problems, the same problems that you were seeing in, in writing as we just discovered mutually yeah, later exactly. on. But I could not take the next step. I couldn't, I, I, I just was like, maybe I was still in the, um, this is about me not quite understanding how it all fits together. Because because I couldn't just accept that the 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 problem might be with the concepts or the constructs that we were that we were working with. Yeah, I guess I I mean I took those I I actually never had a course in measurement theory. I taught a course in measurement theory. Oh, those are I, rare. When Good I for you. Um, when I was a graduate student, actually, one of my was to teach an undergraduate course in measurement theory, and I I had partially some exposure to measurement theory in a course on assessment, which uh-huh. I had taken and yeah. then later That's taught. where most people get yeah. some exposure. But I found it incredibly fascinating because, of course, there's serious philosophy of science that totally. underlies Absolutely. classical measurement theory. It's huge. And um, I just found that really interesting. And, uh, I had, and I took many statistics courses. And even now, for example, I have weekly meetings with these engineers who have very patiently over a number of years taught me enough math that I can understand some of the, some of the, some of the philosophical and scientific assumptions that are being made in, in order to make the math easier and computationally tractable. And it's hugely problematic, actually. Oh, it can be, um, for sure, yeah. So that's been really fun. Um, to do but I guess you know I guess always I've just always found puzzles and you know fun and I I you know the idea that things aren't quite as they seem 
you know, aren't as they appear to be. Um, also I found really, I've just always found that really captivating. Um, uh, and I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. Maybe at some moments I think, well, I can do, I can always do something else. Uh, if this doesn't work out, you know? Yeah. Um, but mainly I think my curiosity, I love science too much really to ever really leave it. I yeah. just, the idea of um, being able to understand how things work is just incredibly, it's an incredible gift to be able to live that kind of life. You know, and I think about students and one of the hardest things it is to train and one of the hardest things it is to learn and that I continuously, I don't know about you, but I continuously relearn over and over again throughout my career is learning to make the distinction between what I really think about a thing and what I'm sort of expected to think or what everybody else thinks. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I have that <laughs> issue. I think uh, one of the things I always tell my students is don't bother with introductions and discussion sections of papers. <laughs> Just um, read the final paragraph. I mean, you have to read those sections when um, you're just learning a field because you, right. you have to understand what the concepts are, what are the terms, how are people using them. Context, history. But in my, in my experience, well, history is super important, yeah. which we, you know, our students don't get enough of, I think. I have more to say about that, about the intersection between the history of science and philosophy of science. But, you know, I'm not obviously not the first to, to have those thoughts. Um, but um, I think that in my experience, oftentimes what the data show in the results section doesn't match what the discussion section says. Yeah. In, in ways that I find per- continually per- perplexing, um, either because there are errors of omission, which there almost always are, or errors of commission from my perspective. So I actually always caution my students to not take anybody's word for it, even mine. They should read the method section and the results section and determine for themselves what they think it says. Yeah. Um, and that's not trivial to really sit down and think, what do I really think? Right. And what I do I think is true? And I, I guess for me, you know, for whatever reason, you could probably come up with all kinds of psychodynamic reasons for this. Um, whenever I have one of my own assumptions violated, my reaction is like, that is so cool. <laughs> right? It's not um, like, oh, oh my God, my the very foundation of my life is over. I'm sure that there are um, there are things where, you know, there are instances where my, where my assumptions are violated. I would feel like it was catastrophic but they I don't think they have to do with science they have more to do with my personal life and my yeah, assumptions about sure, certain people sure. and what their importance is to me um, I think in science my reaction has always been is incredibly cool and I just gravitate to instances uh, where in instances where my own expectations or assumptions are violated I just think it's really cool the magic of the failed hypothesis. All right, Lisa, thanks again. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye. You could always hold that one good thought and that one good thought saw you through hovering above life you grew you there's nothing wrong with you You'll always say That's what you did